Book three, chapter three of the Cathedral by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three, Saturday, June nineteenth, the ball. Joan was in her bedroom preparing for the ball. It was now only half past six, and the ball was not until half past nine. But Mr. Mumfit, the becurled, the besented young assistant from the hairdressers in the high street, had paid his visit very early because he had so many other heads of so many other young ladies to dress in Polchester that evening. So Joan sat in front of the long looking glass, a towel still over her shoulders, looking at herself in a state of ecstasy and delight. It was wrong of her, perhaps, to feel so happy. She felt that deep in her consciousness. Wrong with all the trouble in the house, Falk gone in disgrace, her father unhappy, her mother so strange, but to-night she could not help herself. The excitement was spluttering and crackling all over the town, the wonderful week upon which the whole country was entering, the ball, her own coming-out ball, and the consciousness that he would be there, and even though he did not love another, would be sure to give her at least one dance. These things were all too strong for her. She was happy, happy, happy. Her eyes danced, her toes danced, her very soul danced for sheer delirious joy. Had any one been behind her to look over her shoulder into the glass, he would have seen the reflection in that mirror of one of the prettiest children the wide world could show. Especially childish she looked to-night, with her dark hair piled high on her head, her eyes wide with wonder, her neck and shoulders so delicately white and soft behind her on the bed was the dress on the dingy carpet a pair of shoes of silver tissue the loveliest things she had ever had they were reflected in the mirror little blobs of silver and as she saw them the colour mounted still higher in her cheeks she had no right to them she had not paid for them they were the first things that she had ever in all her life bought on credit neither her father nor her mother knew anything about them but she had seen them in harriet's shop window and had simply not been able to resist them if after all she was to dance with him that made anything right were she sent to prison because she could not pay for them it would not matter she had done the only possible thing and so she looked into the mirror and saw the dark glitter in her hair and the red in her cheeks and the whiteness of her shoulders and the silver blobs of the little shoes and she was happy happy with an almost fearful ecstasy mrs brandon also was in her bedroom she was sitting on a high stiff-backed chair staring in front of her she had been sitting there now for a long time without making any movement at all she might have been a dead woman her thin hands with the sharply marked blue veins were clasped tightly on her lap she was feeding feverishly eagerly feeding upon the thought of morris she would see him that evening they would talk together dance together their hands would burn as they touched they would say very little to one another they would long agonize for one another to be alone together to be far far away from everybody and they would be desperately unhappy she wondered in her strange kind of mouse-in-the-trap trance about that unhappiness was there to be no happiness for her anywhere was she always to want more than she got was all this passion now too late 
was it real at all was it not a fever a phantom a hallucination did she see morris did she not rather see something that she must seize to slake her burning feverish thirst for one moment she had known happiness when her arms had gone around him and she had been able to console and comfort him but comfort him for how long was he not as unhappy as she and would they not always be unhappy was he not weighed down by the sin that he had committed that he as he thought had caused her to commit at that she sprang up from the chair and paced the room murmuring aloud no no i did it my sin not his i will care for him watch over him watch over him care for him he must be glad she sank down by the bed burying her face in her hands brandon was in his study finishing his letters but behind his application to the notes that he was writing his brain was moving like an animal stealthily investigating an unlighted house he was thinking of his wife and of himself even as he was writing and therefore it seems to me my dear ryle that with regard to the actual hour of the service eight o'clock his inner consciousness was whispering to him how you miss falk how lonely the house seems without him you thought you could get along without love didn't you or at least you were not aware that it played any very great part in your life but now that the one person whom you most sincerely loved is gone you see that it was not to be so simply taken for granted do you not love must be worked for sacrificed for cared for nourished and cherished you want someone to cherish now and you are surprised that you should so want yes there is your wife amy amy you had taken her also for granted but she is still with you there is time his wife was illuminated with tenderness he put down his pen and stared in front of him what he wanted and what she wanted was a holiday they had been too long here in this place that was what he needed that was the explanation of his headaches of his tempers of his obsession with ronder as soon as this pibus st anthony affair was settled he would take his wife abroad just the two of them another honeymoon after all these years greece italy and who knows perhaps he would see falk on his way through london returning falk he had forgotten his letters staring in front of him tapping the table with his pen there was a knock on the door the maid said a lady to see you sir she says it's important and before he could ask her name some one else was in the room with him and the door was closed behind her he was puzzled for a moment as to her identity a rather seedy down-at-the-heels looking woman she was wearing a rather crumpled white cotton dress she carried a pink parasol and on her head was a large straw hat overburdened with bright red roses ah yes of course miss milton who was the librarian shabby she looked come down in the world he had always disliked her he resented now the way in which she had almost forced her way into his room she looked across at him through her funny half-closed eyes i beg your pardon archdeacon brandon she said for entering like this at what must be i fear an unseemly time my only excuse must be the urgency of my business i am very sorry miss milton he said sternly it is quite impossible for me to see you just now on any business whatever 
if you will make an appointment with me in writing i will see what can be done at the sound of his voice her eyes closed still further i'm very sorry archdeacon she said i think you would do well to listen to what i'm going to tell you he raised his head and looked at her at those words of her he had once again the sensation of being pushed down by strong heavy hands into some deep mire where he must have company with filthy crawling animals hog de vray and now this woman what do you mean he asked disgust thickening his voice what can you have to tell me she smiled she crossed the floor and came close to his desk her fingers were on the shabby bag that hung over her arm i was greatly puzzled she said as to what was the right thing to do i am a good and honest woman archdeacon although i was ejected from my position most wrongfully by those that ought to have known better i have come down in the world through no fault of my own and there are some who should be ashamed in their hearts of the way they've treated me however it's not of them i've to speak to-day she paused brandon drew back into his chair please tell me miss milton your business as soon as possible i have much to do i will she breathed hard and continued certain information was placed in my hands and i found it very difficult to decide on the justice of my course after some hesitation i went to canon ronder knowing him to be a just man at the name ronder the archdeacon's lips moved but he said nothing i showed him the information i had obtained i asked him what i should do he gave me advice which i followed he advised you to come to me miss milton saw at once that a lie here would serve her well he advised me to come to you and give you this letter which in the true sense of the word belongs to you she fumbled with her bag opened it took out a piece of paper i must tell you she continued her eyes never for an instant leaving the archdeacon's face that this letter came into my hands by an accident i was in mr morris's house at the time and the letter was delivered to me by mistake mr morris brandon repeated what has he to do with this affair miss milton rubbed her gloved hands together mrs brandon she said has been very friendly with mr morris for a long time past the whole town has been talking of it the clock suddenly began to strike the hour no word was spoken then brandon said very quietly leave this house miss milton and never enter it again if i have any further trouble with you the police will be informed before i go archdeacon said miss milton also very quietly you should uh, see this letter i can assure you that i have not come here for mere words i have my conscience to satisfy like any other person i am not asking for anything in return for this information although i should be perfectly justified in such an action considering how monstrously i have been treated i give you this letter and you can destroy it at once my conscience will be satisfied if on the other hand you don't read it well there are others in the town who must see it he took the letter from her dearest i am sending this by a safe hand to tell you that i cannot possibly get down to-night i am so sorry and most dreadfully disappointed but i will explain everything when we meet to-morrow this is to prevent your waiting on when i'm not coming it was in his wife's handwriting dearest 
cannot possibly get down to-night in his wife's handwriting certainly yes his wife's and ronder had seen it he looked across at miss milton this is not my wife's handwriting he said you realize i hope in what a serious matter you have become involved by your hasty action he added not hasty she said moistening her lips with her tongue not hasty archdeacon i have taken much thought i don't know if i have already told you that i took the letter myself at the door from the hand of your own maid she has been to the library with books she is well known to me he must exercise enormous superhuman self-control that was his only thought the tide of anger was rising in him so terribly that it pressed against the skin of his forehead drawn tight and threatened to split it what he wanted to do was to rise and assault the woman standing in front of him his hands longed to take her they seemed to have life and volition of their own and to move across the table of their own accord he was aware too once more of some huge plot developing around him some supernatural plot in which all the elements too were involved earth sun and sky and also every one in the town down to the smallest child there he seemed to see behind him just out of his sight a tall massive figure directing the plot a figure something like himself only with a heavy black beard cloudy without form they would catch him in their plot as in a net but he would escape them and he would escape them by wonderful calm and self-control and the absence of all emotion so that although his voice shook a little it was quietly that he repeated this is not my wife's handwriting you know the penalties for forgery then looking her full in the face he added penal servitude she smiled back at him i am sure archdeacon that all i require is a full investigation these wickednesses are going on in this town and those principally concerned should know i have only done what i consider my duty her eyes lingered on his face she savoured now during these moments the revenge for which in all these months she had ceaselessly longed he had moved but little he had not raised his voice but watching his face she had seen the agony pass like an entering guest behind his eyes that guest would remain she was satisfied i have done my duty archdeacon and now i wish you good evening she gave a little bow and retired from the room softly closing the door behind her he sat there looking at the letter the assembly rooms seemed to move like a ship on a sunset sea hanging from the ceiling were the two great silver candelabra in some ways the most famous treasure that the town possessed fitted now with gas they were nevertheless so shaded that the light was soft and mellow round the room beneath the portraits of the town's celebrities in their heavy gold frames the lights were hidden with shields of gold the walls were ivory white from the minstrel's gallery flags with the arms of the town of the cathedral of the st leath family fluttered once and again faintly in the minstrel's gallery the band was playing just as it had played a hundred years ago the shining floor was covered with moving figures every one was there 
under the gallery surveying the world like bodicea her faithful britons was lady st leath her white hair piled high above her pink baby face that had the inquiring haughty expression of a cockatoo wondering whether it was being offered a lump of sugar or an insult on either side of her sat two of her daughters lady rose and lady mary plain and patient near her in a complacent chattering row were some of the more important of the cathedral and county set there were the marriotts from maple durham fat sixty and amiable old colonel wotherston who had fought in the crimea sir henry biles with his large purple nose little major garnet the kindest bachelor in the county the marquesas who had more pedigree than pennies mrs sampson in bright lilac and an especially bad attack of neuralgia mrs cumbermere sheath in cloth of gold and very jolly mrs ryle humble in grey silk ellen stiles in cherry colour mrs truden mrs forrester and mrs darcy their chins nearly touching over eager confidences dr puddifoot still breathless from his last dance bentick major tapping with his patent leather toe the floor eager to be at it again branston the mayor and mrs branston uncomfortable in a kind of dog collar of diamonds mrs preston searching for nobility canon martin dennison the headmaster of the school and many others it was just then a polka and the tune was so alluring so entrancing that the whole world rose and fell with its rhythm and where was joan joan was dancing with the reverend rex forsyte the proposed incumbent of pybus st anthony had any one told her a week ago that she would dance with the elegant mr forsyte before a gathering of all the most notable people of polchester and southern glebeshire and would so dance without a tremor she would have derided her informant but what cannot excitement and happiness do she knew that she was looking nice she knew that she was dancing as well as any one else in the room and johnny st leath had asked her for two dances and then wanted more and wanted these with the beautiful claire d'albany all radiant in silver standing close beside him what then could all the foresights in the world matter nevertheless he was elegant very smart indeed rather like a handsome young horse groomed for a show his voice had a little neigh in it as he talked over her shoulder he gave a little whinny of pleasure she found it very difficult to think of him as a clergyman at all you should see me dance the polka ta-rum ta-rum ta-ta yes she should and he should and he was very pleasant when he did not talk you dance very well miss brandon thank you this is my first ball who would think that Taram taram ta ta jolly tune she caught glimpses of every one as she went around mrs cumbermere's cloth of gold lady st leath's white hair poor lady mary such a pity that they could not do something for her complexion spotty joan liked her she did much good to the poor in seatown and it must be agony to her poor thing to go down there because she was so terribly shy her next dance was with johnny she called him johnny and why should she not secretly to herself ah there was mother all alone and there was mr morris coming up to speak to her kind of him but he was a kind man she liked him 
very shy though all the nicest people seemed to be shy except johnny who wasn't shy at all the music stopped and breathless they stayed for a moment before finding two chairs now was coming the time that she so greatly disliked whatever to say to mr forsyte they sat down in the long passage outside the ballroom the floor ran like a ribbon from under their feet into dim shining distance or rather joan thought it was like a stream and on either side the dancers were sitting dabbling their toes and looking self-conscious do you like it where you are joan asked of the shining black silk waistcoat that gleamed beside her oh you know neighed mr forsyte it's all right you know the old bishop's kind enough bishop clematis said joan yes there ain't enough to do you know but i don't expect i'll be there long no i don't pity poor morrison at pybus dying like that joan of course at once understood the allusion she also understood that mr forsyte was begging her to bestow upon him any little piece of news that she might have obtained but that seemed to her mean spying spying on her own father so she only said you're very fond of writing aren't you love it said mr forsyte whinnying so exactly like a happy pony that joan jumped don't you i've never been on horseback in my life said joan i'd like to try never in your life mr forsyte stared why i was on a pony before i was three fact good for a clergyman riding i think it's nearly time for the next dance said joan would you kindly take me back to my mother she was conscious as they plunged downstream of all the burning glances she held her head high her eyes flashed she was going to dance with johnny and they could look as much as they liked mr forsyte delivered her to her mother and went cantering off joan sat down smoothed her dress and stared at the vast shiny lake of amber in which the silver candelabra were reflected like little islands she looked at her mother and was suddenly sorry for her it must be dull when you were as old as mother coming to these dances and especially when you had so few friends her mother had never made many friends wasn't that mr morris who was talking to you just now yes dear i like him he looks kind yes dear and where's father over there talking to lady st leath she looked across and there he was so big and tall and fine so splendid in his grand clothes her heart swelled with pride isn't he splendid mother dear who father splendid yes doesn't he look splendid to-night better looking than all the rest of the room put together johnny wasn't good-looking better than good-looking oh look splendid yes he's a very handsome man joan felt once again that little chill with which she was so often familiar when she talked with her mother a sudden withdrawal of sympathy a pushing joan away with her hand but never mind there was the music again and here oh here was johnny Someone had once called him tubby in her hearing and how indignant she had been he was perhaps a little on the fat side but strong with it she went off with him the waltz began she sank into sweet delicious waters waters that rocked and cradled her hugged her and caressed her she was conscious of his arm she did not speak nor did he years of utter happiness passed 
he did not take her as mr forsyth had done into the public glare of the passage but up a crooked staircase behind the minstrel's gallery into a little room cool and shaded where in easy chairs they were quite alone he was shy fingering his gloves she said just to make conversation how beautiful miss daubeny is looking do you think so said johnny i don't i'm sick of that girl she's the most awful bore mother's always shoving her at my head she's been staying with us for months she wants me to marry her because she's rich but we've got plenty and i won't marry her anyway not if we hadn't a penny because she's a bore and because his voice became suddenly loud and commanding i'm going to marry you something some lovely bird of paradise some splendid coloured breeze some carpet of magic pattern came and swung joan up to a high tree loaded with golden apples and there she swung singing her heart out johnny's voice came up to her because i'm going to marry you what she called down to him i'm going to marry you i knew it from the very first second i saw you that day after the cathedral from the very first moment i knew it i wanted to ask you right away at once but i thought i'd do the thing properly so i went away and i've been in paris and rome and all over the place and i've thought of you the whole time every minute then mother made a fuss about this daubeny girl my not being here and all that so i thought i'd come home and tell you i was going to marry you oh but you can't joan swung down from her apple-tree you and me why what would your mother say it isn't a case of would but will johnny said mother will be very angry and for a considerable time but that makes no difference mother's mother and i'm myself it's impossible said joan quickly from every point of view do you know what my brother has done i'm proud of falk and love him but you're lord st leath and falk has married the daughter of hogg the man who keeps a public-house down in seatown i heard of that said johnny but what does that matter do you know what i did last year i crossed the atlantic as a stoker in a cunard boat mother never knew until i got back and wasn't she furious but the world's changing there isn't going to be any class differences soon none at all you take my word look at the americans they're the people we'll be like them one day but what's all this he suddenly said i'm going to marry you and you're going to marry me you love me don't you yes said joan faintly well then i knew you did i'm going to kiss you he put his arms round her and kissed her very gently oh how i love you he said and how good i'll be to you but we must be practical said joan wildly how can we marry everything's against it i've no money i'm nobody your mother now you must leave my mother alone leave me to manage her i know all about that i won't be engaged to you said joan firmly not for ages and ages not for a year anyway that's all right said johnny indifferently you can settle it any way you please but no one's going to marry you but me and no one's going to marry me but you he would have kissed her again but mrs preston and a young man came in now you shall come and speak to my mother he said to her as they went out there's nothing to be afraid of just say bo to her as you would to a goose and she'll answer all right 
you won't say anything began joan about us all right that's a secret for the present but we shall meet every day and if there's a day we don't meet you've got to write do you agree whether she agreed or no was uncertain because they were now in a cloud of people and a moment later were face to face with the old countess she was pleased it at once appeared she was in a gracious mood people had been pleasant enough that is they had been obsequious and flattering also her digestion was behaving properly those new pills that old puddifoot had given her were excellent she therefore received joan very graciously congratulated her on her appearance and asked her where her elder sister was when joan explained that she had no sister lady st leath appeared vexed with her as though it had been a piece of obvious impertinence on her part not to produce a sister instantly when she had asked for one however lady mary was kind and friendly and made joan sit beside her for a little joan thought i'd like to have you for a sister one day if if ever and allowed her thoughts to go no farther thence she passed into the company of mrs cumbermere and ellen stiles it seemed to her but it was probably her fancy that as she came to them they were discussing something that was not for her ears it seemed to her that they swiftly changed the conversation and greeted her with quite an unusual warmth of affection for the first time that evening a sudden little chill of foreboding whence she knew not seemed to touch her and shade for an instant her marvellous happiness mrs cumbermere was very sweet to her indeed quite as though she had been but now recovering from an alarming illness her bass voice strong thick hands and stiff wiry hair went so incongruously with her cloth of gold that joan could not help smiling you look very happy my dear mrs cumbermere said of course i am said joan how can i help it my first ball mrs cumbermere kicked her trailing garments with her foot just like a dame in a pantomime well enjoy yourself as long as you can you're looking very pretty the prettiest girl in the room i've just been saying so to ellen haven't i ellen ellen stiles was at that moment making herself agreeable to the mayoress who was sitting lonely and uncomfortable weighed down with longing for sleep on a little gilt chair i was just saying to mrs branston miss stiles said turning round that the time one has to be careful with children after whooping cloth is when they seem practically well her little boy has just been ill with it and she says he's recovered but that's the time as i tell her when nine out of ten children die just when you think you're safe oh dear said mrs branston turning towards them her full anxious eyes you do alarm me miss stiles and i've been letting tommy quite loose as you may say these last few days with his appetite back and all that there seemed no danger well if you find him feverish when you get home to-night said ellen don't be surprised all the excitement of the jubilee too will be very bad for him at that moment canon ronder came up joan looked and at once at the sight of the round gleaming spectacles the smiling mouth the full cheeks puffed out as though he were blowing perpetual bubbles for his own amusement felt her old instinct of repulsion this man was her father's enemy and so hers all the town knew now that he was trying to ruin her father so that he might take his place that he laughed at him and mocked him 
So fierce did she feel that she could have scratched his cheeks. He was smiling at them all, and at once was engaged in a wordy duel with Mrs. Cumbermere and Miss Stiles. They liked him. Everyone in the town liked him. She heard his praises sung by everyone. Well, she would never sing them. She hated him. And now he was actually speaking to her. He had the impertinence to ask her for a dance. "'I'm afraid I'm engaged for the next and for the one after that, Canon Ronder,' she said. "'Well, later on, then,' he said, smiling. "'What about an extra?' Her dark eyes scorned him. "'We are going home early,' she said. She pretended to examine her program. "'I'm afraid I have not one before we go.' She spoke as coldly as she dared. She felt the eyes of Mrs. Cumbermere and Ellen Stiles upon her. How stupid of her! She had shown them what her feelings were, and now they would chatter the more and laugh about her fighting her father's battles. Why had she not shown her indifference, her complete indifference? He was smiling still, not discomfited by her rudeness. He said something, something polite and outrageously kind, and then young Charles Darcy came up to carry her off for the Lancers. An hour later her cup of happiness was completely filled. She had danced during that hour four times with Johnny. Everyone must be talking. Lady St. Leith must be furious. She did not know that Boadicea had been playing whist with old Colonel Wotherstone and Sir Henry Biles for the last ever so long. She would perhaps never have such an hour in all her life again. This thing that he so wildly proposed was impossible, utterly, completely impossible. But what was not impossible, what was indeed certain and sure, and beyond any sort of question, was that she loved Johnny St. Leith with all her heart and soul, and would so love him until the day of her death. Life could never be purposeless, nor mean, nor empty for her again, while she had that treasure to carry about with her in her heart meanwhile she could not look at him and doubt but that for the moment at any rate he loved her and there was something simple and direct about johnny as there was about his dog andrew that made his words few and clumsy though they might be most strangely convincing so almost dizzy with happiness she climbed the stair behind the gallery and thought that she would escape for a moment into the little room where johnny had proposed to her and sit there and grow calm she looked in someone was there a man sitting by himself and staring in front of him she saw at once that he was in some great trouble his hands were clenched his face puckered and set with pain then she saw that it was her father. He did not move. He might have been a block of stone shining in the dimness. Terrified, she stood, herself not moving. Then she came forward. She put her hand on his shoulder. Oh, father, father, what is it? She felt his body trembling beneath her touch. He, the proudest, finest man in the country. She put her arm around his neck. She kissed him. His forehead was damp with sweat, his body was shaking from head to foot. She kissed him again and again, kneeling beside him. Then she remembered where they were. Someone might come. No one must see him like that. She whispered to him, took his hands between hers. "'Let's go home, Joan,' he said. "'I want to go home.' 
she put her arm through his and together they went down the little stairs end of book three chapter three